Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny. All that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade, or the pot and poisoner, curious social history, or the great swan mystery of 1935, we'll follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. On today's episode, staff at the Pound Stretcher Shop in Biggleswade got more than they bargained for when strange phenomena started causing trouble at their place of work. I want you to imagine, if you can, just for a moment, that you're one of those members of staff. Our story begins with small things. That feeling you get that you're not alone, even though you know you are. You know the feeling like someone is watching you from that shadowy corner, from behind you or through that open doorway. The hairs on the back of your neck prickle. You turn your head slowly, reluctantly. You don't want to, but you have to look. And then when you do, there's no one there. Imagine this is happening to you again and again, day after day, in your place of work, at this high street shop. You like working there. Your colleagues are great, the customers, well, there's good and there's bad, it's work. It pays the bills. You enjoy it. But it's not long until other things start happening. Strange, unsettling things. Whilst you're alone in the shop, you hear a voice calling out to you. So you check, but there's no one there. Another day, you hear crying coming from another room. And when you get there, the room's unoccupied. These things are unnerving, baffling even, but they're things you can probably tell yourself are just your imagination, right? But it doesn't stop there. Doors often close by themselves, even trapping a colleague in the office. You arrive to work in the morning, opening up the shop to find stock all over the floor, like a child has been playing in the shop overnight, tossing toys here and there without a care in the world. Yet the shop was neat and tidy when you left it the night before. And your colleagues swear they aren't pranking you because they're experiencing these things too. Some of them are really scared. What do you tell yourself then? What do you tell yourself when these things just keep getting stranger and stranger and harder to explain? When going into work feels like being in a Ghostbusters film? What would you do? Hand in your notice? Laugh it off? Have a stiff drink or three after work? Convince yourself that there's always an explanation for these things. Isn't there? isn't there? Today we're following the twisty tale of Biggleswade's haunted pound stretcher. I'm Nat Doig and I'm your host for today's episode of Weird in the Wade, the haunted pound stretcher. We'll hear the testimony of 10 separate witnesses, half a dozen of whom worked in the shop. 
We'll explore some theories about who or what is causing the strange phenomena and we'll dive deeper into the history of the building and the people who have lived and worked there, trying to uncover what's haunting Biggleswade's pound stretcher. I'm not here to prove that ghosts exist or they don't. I'm interested in stories about people and how these encounters affect them. Why do we enjoy these stories so much? Why do we enjoy being frightened when we tell them? I'm interested in why we have ghost stories and why we report them. Whether you believe in ghosts or you're a sceptic searching for answers, or maybe you just like a good ghost story, I hope you'll find something in today's episode to enjoy. And I hope especially that today's episode will make you pause and ponder. If you thought my earlier introduction was scary, there's much more to come about what was seen and heard at the haunted pound stretcher of Biggleswade. But we've got to address it, haven't we? It's funny. It's really funny, isn't it? Whether you believe in ghosts or not, the idea of a haunted pound stretcher is just funny, like really daft, to the onlooker anyway. I'm not sure how funny it was for those who worked there. It's just not a location you'd associate with ghosts. It's the least atmospheric setting for a haunting. It's so everyday. It's mundane. We associate hauntings with churchyards and old spooky mansions, abandoned buildings, or lonely woods swirling with mist and mystery. We don't expect ghosts to pop up while we're shopping for garden wire or plastic storage boxes. We'll come back to this later in the show, explore what makes a story spooky. But let's start at the beginning and set the scene for this story on Biggleswade High Street. Biggleswade is a market town in Bedfordshire. It's known for growing onions and chilies. It's halfway between London and Peterborough. It's not a large town, but it's growing. It's a kind of nowhere place. It's not part of the home counties. It's not really in the Midlands nor East Anglia. It's not a tourist destination either. It often feels like a town floating in a kind of limbo. For the last 500 years, it's been the place people travel through rather than to. It's on the Great North Road and it has always catered for travellers, a stopping off point to rest your weary bones for the night and then move on. A place to pass through on the train or road. Stick with this series and you'll learn more about the town. But today, we're on the high street. We're at the west end of Biggleswade High Street, where it starts. Behind us leads to the parish church, the conservative club and an holistic healing and yoga centre housed in a beautiful white 17th century building. To our right is a boxy, modern block of flats with shops below, built where once stood the Grand Swan Hotel, a coaching inn with stables for horses and a good reputation in all the 19th century guides. Now there's a pizza place and a lovely art and framing shop. On our left is the old NatWest Bank, a large red brick building, a wound in its side where an ATM once pumped out cash. Ahead of us, there is a set of traffic lights. What you won't see now is the pound stretcher. That closed down in 2017. But if we went back in time, just eight years, to 2015, the NatWest Bank would still be open, its ATM still pumping out money, and next to it, before you reached the hairdressers, you'd see the orange and yellow sign for the pound stretchers. It was housed in a building lower than its neighbours, its sloping roof a warm brown. Above the glass shop front, it was painted cream, with three evenly spaced small windows, except the furthest window was not what it seemed. It was a scar, a ghost window, boarded up and painted the same cream as its walls. Outside the shop, plastic storage tubs were stacked ready to be bought, and in the summer, these were often joined by oversized plastic plant pots filled with sparkly paper windmills spinning lazily in the breeze. And it's inside this very ordinary shop that our story begins. I've only ever been in the public side of the shop, but I visited many times. It was a long, thin space, an overstuffed treasure trove of bargains from gardening equipment to toilet seats, towels and bedding to toys and soft drinks, hobby supplies to party paraphernalia. 
I can only say that as a customer, I liked shopping there. The staff were helpful and friendly, um, but it did have a wee bit of an odd atmosphere, which I'm sure can be explained. What is harder to explain are the experiences of the staff who worked there. I first came across their experiences in a local Facebook page in 2015. In fact, over the years, when anyone has posted about paranormal experiences or stories on that group, the pound stretcher gets a shout out. So I decided to reach out to these ex-employees by posting a request for information on the same group and boy did the information come. In the first five days, that post received 65 comments. I also scoured previous posts from 2015, 16 and 17 for more information. In all, I have found nine witnesses to something ghostly or inexplicable at or around the pound stretcher. Six are confirmed members of staff and one is a passerby who witnessed something whilst the shop was closed. One witness doesn't say what their relationship is to the pound stretcher and another worked next door. There is one other poster who put forward a theory about the origin of the ghost, but without identifying as an actual witness. I've changed the names of the witnesses, as although they have shared their stories publicly via social media, this isn't social media, and I want to protect their identities. I would love for at least one of them to be brave enough to be interviewed for this podcast and by keeping their identities anonymous for now, I hope that might make it easier for them to come forward. So, any names I use are pseudonyms to protect their privacy. I have also grouped together the phenomena reported to make it easier to narrate this story, but until I can interview a witness, I can't confirm when exactly every incident took place in relation to the others. It started, as so often with these types of stories, with colleagues at the pound stretcher finding the shop unusually cold. Helen, a former employee, said, It was always freezing cold in the shop. Alongside this cold temperature was a sense of unease, or of being watched, the hairs on the back of your arms and the back of your neck prickling. You know the feeling. But there was also a gentler sensation reported of just feeling like someone else was there. Not frightening, just unexplainable. When you know that you're alone, but feel like there's someone with you. There were places in the Pound Stretcher building where these feelings of a presence were particularly strong. Out at the back of the shop, the office, the cellar, and especially the attic. Callie, a former employee, said... The attic was the worst area. I hated it. I only went up there once. It was where the ghost was most active. But it wasn't just cold spots and the sensation of being watched. Mary, who also worked there, described hearing voices. She described hearing someone call for her from the back storeroom. She thought it must be one of her colleagues. But when she got to the top of the stairs to see what they wanted there was no one there no one had been calling her I have also read reports that footsteps were often heard on these stairs when no one else was in the building when no one could have been walking on them and I can report having sat upstairs in what was once this area of the shop these stairs are exceptionally creaky You can hear if someone is walking on them. But more about how I got to witness this later in the episode. It wasn't just voices and creaky stairs, though. There were the reports of crying being heard coming from a back room. Imagine it, if you will. You're in the shop. It's closed for the day. You're cashing up, tidying, ready for tomorrow, thinking about what you're going to have for tea tonight when you get home... But just as you're about to head out, you hear a sound. A strange keening noise. It's like it's coming from one of the storerooms. It sounds like crying. But how can it be when you're alone? Maybe it is a child crying as they pass by on the high street and the sound is just echoing, 
echoing strangely through the shop. Sound can do that, right? You tell yourself that's it. But the sound persists. But it doesn't move away or stop like it would if it was a child passing by. You want to go home, but you can't look up whilst you can hear that sound. What if it's an animal trapped? Oh God, you can't lock it in overnight. You don't want to, but you walk closer to the storeroom and listen. The noise is getting louder as you approach. It's definitely coming from that storeroom. You think of the horror movies, when you groan at the girl who goes into the basement. Why do they do that? But this isn't a film. You go a few more paces forward, ever so slowly. Stand on the cold stone floor and listen. It's quiet for a moment. You breathe out. Maybe you imagined it. You're about to turn and head back when you hear it again. Louder. It's definitely coming from the storeroom. You pad over to the door quietly, holding your breath. It's like you don't want whatever is in there to know that you're here. All the while, the sound is getting louder as you get closer. You stop outside the door and the sound stops. That's almost as bad as when it was getting louder. Then there, it starts again. Your heart races. You put your fingers around the cold metal of the door handle. You calculate how quickly you can open the door and switch on the light. In one swift move, you do it. And nothing. The noise stops. The room is full of boxes of unopened stock, stacked where you would expect them to be, stretching back into the room. You don't want to go in and investigate, but you do, heart thumping. You inspect the room, but there's nothing out of place. There's no child or adult or animal in there. It's completely empty of life. How would you feel after that? Would you want to go back into work the next day? And if hearing voices and feeling watched wasn't enough, there were the lights flickering on and off, especially in the men's toilets. Yet there were no men working there at the time, so no one would be switching the lights on and off in there. Manipulating lights is one thing, but our witnesses described stock falling from the shelves. They'd arrived to open up in the morning to find things all over the floor. Toys strewn along with beddings and cushions. Items secure the night before, somehow, overnight, could work themselves loose and throw themselves off the shelves. It seemed impossible. I imagine it was also bloody annoying. Yet this messing about with stock wasn't just happening overnight. Callie says, literally, items would fly off the shelves in front of her in broad daylight and in front of other witnesses. Becky, another witness, says she saw bags of sweets flying. Callie describes a jar of coffee that flew off the shelf. Related to these incidents, when they occurred at night, was the burglar alarm being set off. There is mention that after the alarm went off one night, for no apparent reason, there was some footage captured. I assume on CCTV. This footage is a mystery though. All I know is that it was so frightening, it terrified the manager Whitless. I'm yet to find out what was on this footage. If you know what the video showed, please reach out to me. I don't know if it was the same manager, but two witnesses speak of doors closing by themselves when there was no other person present, nor a breeze to close them. And on one occasion, a door shut, locking the manager alone in the office. Apparently, at first, they thought it was a prank. But Mary says no one was playing a joke on the manager. The door just locked completely on its own. One other report is of an upstairs window closing and opening by itself. And I wonder if this has anything to do with the window that was boarded up at the pound stretcher. From looking at Google Street View from 2008 until the pound stretcher is closed in 2017 and the building was sold, the window is boarded up. In 2008, the boards look new. 
by 2009, it's looking a bit grubby and worn. And by 2012, it's been painted over the same cream colour as the walls. I sat next to this once boarded up window in late March 2023 and the fittings of it and the frame and catches are clearly very old. Images can be seen in the show notes and on our blog at weirdinthewade.blog. More on my visit later. So far, these statements have followed a pattern familiar to anyone interested in hauntings and in particular poltergeist activity. Whether you believe that ghosts exist or not, when people report strange experiences, they can be grouped together by phenomena. And a poltergeist, which in German means rumbling ghost or noisy spirit, is categorised as an experience or activity involving physical phenomena, such as items moving and sounds being heard. Poltergeist hauntings usually follow a trajectory of phenomena, which is something like this. Cold spots or temperature changes. The sensation of being watched or not being alone. Inexplicable sounds being heard, and in our case, footsteps, voices and crying. Items moving when out of sight, which can develop into items being thrown or flung whilst witnesses are present. Doors being shut or locked, or heavy objects being moved. Then electrical systems being tampered with, whether it's lights or burglar alarms. Often in these types of cases, the activity is associated with an adolescent or with an older woman, as if the poltergeist has fixated on an individual person. In our story, we don't know if one person over another felt like they were being targeted, but we do know that the shop employees who have shared their stories are all women and ranged in ages, I'd estimate, as from quite young 20s to slightly older in their 40s. Often, the list that I've just outlined is the only type of activity reported in a poltergeist case. And again, I'm making no judgment here on what a poltergeist is, but I am reporting what was witnessed and what researchers who are both believers and sceptics have categorised together as poltergeist phenomena. Less often in these types of cases, there are more, even stranger, inexplicable phenomena. And in our case about the pound stretcher, there is more. What could be stranger than what I've already told you? Well, one of the rarest type of phenomena reported is actually seeing an apparition or a ghost. It's really not as common as you'd think, especially in poltergeist-type cases. Our witnesses, Becky, Jody, and Millie, all report having seen an apparition or a ghost. Our witness Jody is an interesting one, as she claims to have seen someone, a female, she says, moving about the shop when it was closed for Christmas. At the time, she thought it was odd, but had no idea that the shop was reportedly haunted. She came forward when she saw other people talking about it online. Becky, who worked in Pound Stretchers, says that she saw the ghost of a young girl on the back stairs of the shop. And she's not the only one in her family who claims to have seen the apparition. Becky's uncle, who worked in the building years before when it was a furniture shop, also saw the ghost of a young girl there, just like she did. I think it was during the time of the furniture shop that the ghost was given her name of Aggie. Meanwhile, our last witness, Millie, says that she has seen the ghost of a young girl as well as feeling her presence whilst in the pound stretcher. I'm unsure if Millie worked in the shop or was a customer. Jenny who took the time to actually contact me personally, not just through the Facebook group, describes the ghost as being that of a young maid who died in the building and says that her name was Aggie. Importantly, Jenny says, I felt her presence and I also felt someone watching me when I was working in the office, but I was never scared. It appears that not everyone was uncomfortable with Aggie's presence in the shop. Becky and her uncle's accounts don't mention fear. Maybe this is because of Aggie's activities seem quite childlike. The sweets and toys being moved, for example, though flying jars of coffee are another matter. 
one final thought on Aggie from back in 2015 was from someone who didn't work in the pound stretchers but had heard that the ghost was the victim of the great fire of Biggleswade, a comment I saw repeated on a different thread by a different person. So what to make of these accounts? As I've already explained, I'm not a paranormal investigator. I don't go out with ghost-busting equipment trying to capture evidence. Neither am I here to disprove the existence of ghostly phenomena. I am neither team believer nor team sceptic. I am firmly team not sure. But I do believe these women's accounts. They felt something was out of the ordinary there. They witnessed strange things and some of them saw things that they can't explain. I don't know if there's a practical, psychological and or sociological explanation or a spiritual one for what happened to them, but I believe that they believe something profound was happening to them when they worked there. I can't give them a definitive answer to what the phenomena were, but I can investigate the history of the building and the town and try and see if there is anything useful lurking in the past to help us understand the present. But first, let's break down what the witnesses have told us. We have six confirmed members of staff who all claim the shop is haunted. Five tell very similar stories about what happened when they worked there. One just gave a statement confirming that she'd worked there and she thought it was haunted. They all mention that out the back of the shop, the cellar and the attic as being where they felt most uncomfortable or where they felt a presence. Three of the five key witnesses say items fell from the shelves by themselves. Three mention something to do with doors closing and doors locking. Two specifically mention the manager being locked inside. Two mention Aggie by name. We also have three people who report witnessing something who either weren't employed at Pan Stretcher or we don't know if they were. One, Denise, who I haven't mentioned until now, worked next door and reported being uncomfortable in the adjoining cellar and being able to smell old-fashioned cooking, in her words, when down there. We'll come back to Denise's report later. Then we have Jodie, who reported seeing a female figure moving about the shop when it was shut for Christmas. I'm fascinated by the fact that only a couple of witnesses say they personally were scared. Two mention the manager being terrified, and one person specifically says that she was not frightened at all. I don't know about you, but I think I might have been a little bit scared. They sound like a really close-knit team of women though, and I think that is probably the key to why they stayed working there and why they weren't always frightened. I think they had each other's backs. They supported each other, they joked about it, and generally looked after one another. It's just a hunch from the way they write about what went on and how they chat to each other on social media when talking about it. Again, we'll come back to this because I think it links into the everyday setting for this ghost story. It's also worth noting that the case of the haunted pound stretcher was so well known in the town that in 2015, when someone asked about it on Facebook, one of the first replies from a member of staff was to tell them that they wouldn't be able to investigate or do anything, in her words, spiritual, because the company had been asked and had already said no. So it does seem that the haunting was an established one that passed from one use of the building to another, like our witness Becky told us. Did Becky's uncle tell her about the ghost before she worked there? It's possible some of the other workers had heard all about Aggie and her antics before they started work at Pound Stretchers too. How did they feel knowing that they were going to work in what was thought of as a haunted building? How did it affect the way they interpreted what happened to them in that building? But it is interesting that some people who shared their stories, like Jodie, who saw someone moving around the shop when it was closed for Christmas, were not aware that the shop had a history. As I have said earlier, I'm really keen to speak with the witnesses who are happy to share their story for this podcast. I'm sure that I'm not alone in wanting to know more. I'd really like to know, how did this make you feel? Were you happy going into work? If the employer knew all about this, did they do anything to help? What was the footage that terrified the manager on that video? What did the ghost of the little girl look like? Who named her Aggie? Was it a nickname to make it easier to be there in the shop with her? Or was it based on real knowledge of a person who died there? I do wonder if it's a joke name, Aggie for Agro, but it could genuinely be because they thought the ghost was an Agnes or an Aggie. 
Whilst I've had no volunteers so far to be interviewed, something I hope will change after this podcast goes out and I will record an update episode if that happens, I can still look into other aspects of the haunting. I can follow up on the historical leads. Wouldn't it be great if we could link Aggie to a real person, whether that's a victim of the fire or a maid who worked in the building? So I set about doing some research. Firstly, I wondered if it was true that the building was exceptionally old. The High Street is a real mix of buildings, dating from the 1970s and going back to over 200 years old. The Great Fire of Biggleswade in 1785 saw to it that we no longer have medieval or even many 17th century buildings in the town centre. More on the fire later. The good news is I found a fantastic old map of Biggleswade High Street, published in 1883, hand-drawn but looking as detailed and accurate as any Google Earth image, even down to individual trees growing in the back gardens of the high street premises. It shows our pound stretcher building and its associated outbuildings behind it stretching to what is now Church Street but was then Brewery Lane. When comparing it to modern Google Earth map, very little has changed in our building which was reassuring for the claim that it is one of the oldest at that end of the high street. It has to be over 100 years old, possibly 200. Next, I turned my attention to the fire. Remember, someone on Facebook said Aggie was the ghost of a girl who perished in the Great Fire of Biggleswade. It was a lead from someone who didn't work at the shop, but it was worth looking into. The fire started only three or four doors away from the pound stretcher building, I wondered if I could find evidence of a victim of the fire associated with where our building now stands, or even the name of Agnes or Aggie. Could there be evidence of a folk memory of a victim of the fire? The Great Fire of Biggleswade was started on Thursday the 16th of June 1785, and remarkably we have a number of contemporary newspaper articles that tell us all about it. This one is from the Northampton Mercury, published four days after the fire on Monday the 20th of June 1785. Thursday morning last, about 11 o'clock, a most terrible fire broke out at Mr Griggs, the Crown Inn in Biggleswade, Bedfordshire, occasioned by a servant throwing hot ashes into the yard, which communicating to a crate full of straw immediately set fire to the premises. The wind being very high, the flames with amazing rapidity spread to different parts of the town and consumed near 200 dwellings, together with barns, stables, etc. A very considerable quantity of corn, hay, etc. with a number of hogs and fat calves. The fire was not got under until near six in the evening. Loss must be very great as many of the principal houses and inns were burnt down. It was indeed very great, with over 330 people losing their homes. In all of the reports that I have read, contemporary and otherwise, I found no mention of human casualties, nor in the appeal which was launched for the people of Biggleswade shortly after the tragedy. The appeal mentions loss of property and the insurance shortfall, but does not mention loss of life or orphaned children, which surely if there had been, would only have helped the appeal if mentioned. The newspaper fire reports of the time and they gave over whole sections to just fire reports because they were so frequent and that terrible. These reports usually do mention when there has been loss of life. In fact, many will mention the number of deaths, those injured and whether they're expected to survive or not. So I can only say that the evidence is pointing towards there being no immediate casualties of the fire. But to double check, I went through the burial records for St Andrew's Church, Biggleswade, for the year of 1785. There were about 63 deaths that year. Only one is in June, and that was almost a week before the fire. One death may seem quite low for the month of June, but July only has two deaths. The vast majority of deaths occur in the winter months, which is understandable, for it's the case even now that heat waves withstanding many older people die in the winter months of flu and of course most recently COVID. Back then with no modern medicine, winter was a treacherous time. Obviously, people may have died later because of the fire, if they were injured or because of disease related to the stresses of being made homeless. 
but thankfully it is looking likely that no one actually died in the fire. When you think that there were only six recorded deaths in the Great Fire of London a century before, it becomes more believable that there were no human casualties in Biggleswade, especially as the fire started in the middle of the day, when people were awake and maybe away from home working in the fields, for example. This does mean that if you believe in ghosts and that they're the spirits or apparitions of people who died, then this theory that a victim of the fire is haunting the pound stretcher looks to be off the cards. This doesn't help us get to the bottom of what was going on, but it's nice to put a rumour aside. And it's not surprising that this was a theory. Every child in Biggleswade is taught about the fire. There's a plaque commemorating it at the rebuilt Crown Inn. Its impact on the town was terrible. So much so that even after 200 years, it is remembered by the townsfolk and would spring to mind as the kind of tragedy that could cause strange and unexplained phenomena centuries later. But there was another theory. At least two people who worked at the shop claim that the ghost is called Aggie and that she is the spirit of a young girl who was a maid. And this lead seemed also possible to research. Well, on the surface it did. If I could find an Agnes or Aggie or a young maid who worked or maybe died in that building, then could she be our ghost? Or could she be the folk memory that gave a name and a shape to the strange experiences? I got to work on the genealogy websites, looking first for any Agneses or Aggies who lived on the high street in Biggleswade. Obviously, this is an inexact science. I only have census records really to work with and the 1939 record. This was a kind of census carried out when war broke out in the Second World War. These are the main resources that not only include addresses, but also the names of all who are present in that address, not just the head of the household. But they are just once a decade and just a snapshot. To make matters even more complicated, the numbering of Biggleswade's High Street has changed a few times and definitely in the first decades of the 20th century. But all of this numbering confusion did throw out an interesting and spooky fact. When the High Street was renumbered, whenever it happened, it swapped the direction of numbers completely. Nowadays, number one the High Street is at the west end of the town. Previously, this is where the high numbers ended. Today, there is no number 13 on the High Street. The old NatWest Bank is number 11 and our pound stretcher building next door is number 15. If whoever designed the numbering hadn't been superstitious, pound stretcher would have been 13 the High Street. But back to the 19th century Pound Stretchers building. It was possibly 81 or 83 High Street. It is really hard to tell. Some census records don't even give street numbers and others seem to provide numbers that don't match to locations. There is a chemist next door to our Pound Stretchers building throughout the 19th century and by the early 20th century, a predecessor to the NatWest Bank is in place along with a bank manager and his family. This helps narrow down where our building is. The chemist is an interesting establishment run by the Spong family for over 100 years, possibly nearer 200. And I believe by the 1960s, Spong's chemist had become Boots. I'm not sure when Boots in the town moved to its current location, which incidentally is where the Catherine Wheel pub once stood. And that was a notorious establishment and it will feature in a future episode about body snatchers. But back to the high street. Although Spong's The Chemist and other buildings like the Crown Hotel help identify the right end of the high street for us, it gets more and more confusing the further you go back in time and the numbering changes yet again. So far, and my search is not exhausted yet, but so far I have found no evidence of any Agneses or Aggies living at that end of the high street or the other for that matter. I did follow up on three young maids who were listed living in or near to our building, but I found evidence that each of them had got married and moved away. Again, my search is not finished. I will keep digging. I even searched the death and burial records for anyone called Agnes from 1840 to 1900 in Biggleswade, and sad reading it was. The vast majority of Agneses died before their seventh birthday. There were many dozens of little girls who died in infancy, all called Agnes. 
Of the half dozen who died between the ages of 10 and 25, an age span that I thought most realistic for anyone who was working as a maid and who would be described as young, none seemed to be linked to Biggleswade Town Centre. I cross-referenced their names with the census records before their deaths and found them living in places far from our high street. But there are huge swathes of years where I cannot search, where data just isn't available between 1921 and 39, for example, as well as after 1939. Anything that occurs in the years between each census is also lost to me. Unlike the constant spongs and their chemist shop, the inhabitants of our pound stretcher building seem to change with every census. I have attempted to search through the newspaper archives for deaths of maids, but it's like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. Nothing has leapt out at me yet, but I will continue my search and I will update this story later in the series, hopefully with more witness testimony. At the start of this show, I mentioned how funny a haunted pound stretcher seems, how everyday settings like this are amusing when it comes to hauntings. We expect ghosts to be found in decidedly more elevated settings. I think it's largely due to the storytellers who made tales of ghosts popular. Writers like M.R. James set their tales in old, crumbling academic buildings, churches, lonely hotels, country houses and libraries. Yet, these were commonplace everyday, even work settings for the academic M.R. James, but to many of his readers, especially now, they appear rarefied and romantic. I think class does come into it, as it does for most things in the UK. The spinners of these classic spooky tales set their stories in gothic houses of their peers, who were peers of the realm. Working class tales of the unexplained are often called urban myths. They're portrayed as grittier, less romantic, and I think in a way that's a shame. Also time has woven its magic over many classic ghost stories. It takes Charles Dickens' ghost story, The Signal Man. To us, it's set in a classic age of steam. It works beautifully in a romantic way, but at the time it was an incredibly modern setting. It would be like setting a ghost story on the new Elizabeth line in London or on a Japanese bullet train. And I think these literary ghost stories do influence which real-life accounts become popular. There are countless settings of vicarages and rectories, abandoned churches and dilapidated country piles for every council house that's haunted. And I think that's also a shame. The places I have been most frightened have actually been in normal houses or workplaces, offices and schools at night when they're empty and lonely, made uncanny and other by the lack of people, not their romantic setting. It's also interesting to think about who is at the centre of ghost stories. The literary ones are often stuffy old men, the sort not prone to flights of fancy. It's a literary device to take the reader with them, whether sceptic or believer. If a tough, no-nonsense man is seeing this stuff, it must be believable, right? It does sound a little sexist to me. There are some superb ghost stories with women at their heart, The Haunting on Hill House, for example, but they're often unreliable narrators. I could start a completely separate podcast looking at gender and ghost stories and real-life sightings, but I don't have time. When it comes to actual real-life reported phenomena, in 2015, a US study showed that slightly more women than men said they had seen or been in the presence of a ghost. 16% of men said they had, contrasted with 20% of women. Women are often thought to be at the centre of sightings, especially poltergeists. And here we have a team of all women caught up in some really unusual phenomena. I wonder how the dynamic of that team both helped them through the ordeal and affected the way that their story is reported to the wider world. Hopefully what this story will have shown is that nothing is ever as it seems. A pound stretcher on one hand was an Aladdin's cave of bargains with modern lighting, a grubby carpet and fairly drab decor. But it was also an old building with history dating back at least 150, possibly 200 years, built on top of an even older building that was burnt to the ground in a terrible fire. Even the mundane can sit within a rich historical context. The ghost might not be that of a queen or a colourful lady. She's thought to be a young woman, a maid, someone who likes to mess with toys and sweets and to play pranks on the living. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, as a concept, she seems fitting for this place. We know that in Britain's past, the frequency of child deaths was far higher than today. 
We still live with that knowledge, that we have the privileges our great-grandparents and their grandparents didn't. So when strange things happen in a bargain shop in Biggleswade, it seems fitting that the story woven around it is that of a humble young serving woman who died too soon. And I'm not giving up. I'm sure that the story of the pound stretcher has more to give. There's more to find out. I'm hopeful that a former employee will agree to be interviewed for this podcast. You don't have to be recorded, but it would be great if someone was willing to do that. It would be so valuable to hear from you in your own words. The building may no longer be a pound stretcher, but it is a gym and a cafe, and maybe the current staff have tales that they can tell. And with that thought, at the end of March 2023, I visited the cafe. I've only supped coffee downstairs or outside Jones's coffee bar before, but there's a newly opened upstairs lounge. So on a very rainy morning, I made my way up those creaky stairs and had my breakfast in what must have been either an old storeroom or office in the pound stretcher. I sat by the window, that one that had once been boarded up. For much of my time there, I was sitting alone. There are photos of the upstairs lounge on the Weird in the Wade blog at weirdinthewade.blog. It was the perfect morning to hang out there, cosy opposite an old fireplace, watching the rain and listening to the traffic hiss by on the sodden streets. The lounge, like many old buildings, has different levels. You could imagine how the rooms had been divided previously by these levels, the odd angles of the walls. There were two sets of stairs, including one leading up to the attic space. They were very creaky, and the floorboards in the attic above us also creaked a lot. There was someone up there, I think. No, there was, I promise you. The atmosphere was warm, cosy, and actually really lovely. I'd been there the afternoon before downstairs to grab a drink and to ask the two girls working there whether they'd experienced anything. I felt a bit nervous, but... I have asked complete strangers worse questions in the past. So I started by saying, look, this is going to sound a bit odd. And please, if you don't want to answer, then don't. Just tell me to go away. It's none of my business. But has anything odd or unexplained ever happened whilst you've been working here? And both women looked at each other, turned around and looked at me and said, oh, you mean Aggie? Sadly, I didn't get a lot of information out of them that day. One of the women was keen to talk, but the other one looked nervous. I tried to be reassuring and pointed out that many of the witnesses from the pan stretcher days said that they weren't scared or they didn't talk about being scared. The last thing that I wanted was to make anyone feel afraid in their workplace. They told me that odd things do happen though mainly reported by other staff. There's a whole gym and studio type room spread out across the whole building, including all the outbuildings and maybe even the attic space. So there are a lot of different staff in that building. All that the two women I spoke to could say was that, yes, everyone working there was aware of Aggie, though they were both genuinely surprised when I mentioned how far back records of this haunting went, all the way back to the furniture store. Apparently... Any mishap or strange thing that happens in the coffee shop is put down to her. If the coffee machine breaks, bags of coffee falling off the shelves, that kind of things. So there's definitely more to explore here. Though sitting in that beautiful lounge, eating a fresh from the oven croissant and hearing the distant calls of a workout instructor, I really wasn't picking up on any unpleasant or spooky vibes but it's a fantastic space to grab a coffee and have a bite to eat. And who knows, maybe Aggie will be curious and keep an eye on you. I will definitely be back. And finally, there is one other aspect of this story that I have yet to explore with you today. It's something that we'll have to come back to because it is huge. You remember that one of the places mentioned in our pound stretcher that was considered to be particularly spooky was the basement. Well, it's not just any old basement, because the basements below the shops in Biggleswade Town Centre hold a secret. A secret that gets argued about even more often than the haunted pound stretcher gets mentioned when anyone asks about paranormal experiences. 
Underneath Biggleswade's town centre, below the market square, the shops on the high street, the church, and even leading down to the river, there are a series of tunnels. The reason for these tunnels, their uses, are shrouded in myth and urban legend. There are tales of monks, smugglers, highwaymen, and even convicted body snatchers. Most of the entrances to this network of tunnels are now bricked up, but there are reports of children back in the 60s and 70s running through them and exploring before they were closed. Those who work in the buildings that have these bricked up entrances to the tunnels often describe them as creepy and frightening and as a source of general strangeness. Remember Denise working the building next door? She said the cellar also had a bricked up tunnel and it was at that tunnel entrance that she would feel uncomfortable and it was where she would smell what she described as old-fashioned cooking. Could these tunnels hold a clue to some of the strange phenomena experienced in Biggleswade, including the pound stretcher? Throughout this season of Weird in the Wade, we will come back and examine the stories associated with these tunnels, as well as trying to get to the bottom of what it was really like to work in the haunted pound stretcher. And certainly, it's only the beginning, so stay tuned for each episode to find out more. But next time, we'll be tackling something a little different. UFOs. Or as they were known at the time, flying saucers. Why was it that for a short while, in 1957 and 58, Biggleswade was the flying saucer capital of the world? Next time on Weird in the Wade. Thank you for listening to episode one of Weird in the Wade, The Haunted Pound Stretcher. I'd also like to thank the witnesses who shared their stories with me on social media. If you have a story that you want to share, please contact me through social media or the blog. Just search Weird in the Wade on Twitter and Instagram or go to weirdinthewade.blog. A special thank you to the Uncanny community for their support online over the last few months. This podcast would not have happened if it hadn't been for the Uncanny Convention back in March. This episode was researched, written and presented by me, Natalie Doig. I also created some of the sound effects. Theme music is by Tess Savagir and additional music and sound effects are by Epidemic Sound. <laughs>